You are now entering the transit zone. Come on in. I'm Peter Clark in Melbourne, Australia. Marco Kingston in Narang on the Gold Coast. And Tim Dunlop at South Bank in Melbourne. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which we live, work and are recording this podcast. The Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and the Yagamba people of the Narang District. We recognise their continuing profound connection to land, water and community. We pay respect to Elders past, present and emerging. Our guest this time in the Transit Zone is an economist based at the University of Queensland, Professor John Quiggan. John, welcome to the Transit Zone. Glad to be here, thank you. Now I can hear you probably somewhere at home, a little bit echoey there. Yesterday, of course, we all saw the Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, concede that we are in fact in recession now. What are those fundamental differences between a financially induced recession and a recession like this one that we're going to be living through that's induced by a government shutdown, a lockdown because of the COVID virus? Well, normally, of course, a recession comes about uh, because there are uh, people willing and able to work who can't find a market for their labour, businesses who can't sell the products they want to make and so forth. This really starts with a shock on the production side. In that sense, it's like something like a really severe drought. It just says we can't produce what we used to produce, restaurant meals, we can't produce all sorts of services because of the restrictions imposed to deal with the virus. So that starting point is very different. And it means, for example, that responses like stimulating aggregate demand, the kind of things that Keynesians like me would normally recommend, aren't really relevant here. What we need to do and have done fairly successfully is support income through this period so that when we emerge from it, we don't have the second round economic effects of large-scale bankruptcies people losing their homes through eviction or mortgage foreclosure and so forth. Uh, so it is a very different kind of experience to one that's induced either by policy of the central bank shutting things down or, or by, for example, a financial crisis like the global financial crisis. John, I, I read your recent piece sort of trying to put a big picture that the world really messed it up after World War One, and that led to depression and World War Two. And then we had a, a complete rethink and a, a reimagining and an international structure built up to try and make a, a better world. Is there a good chance, do you think, for that to happen now or are we headed into a, a new dark age perhaps? Looking at Australia, we really are seeing those, those possibilities and we've been forced to do all sorts of things radically differently. Some of those things, um, some of those things we'll be glad to put behind us, but I think lots of things have shown that the kinds of things that were just considered as off the agenda suddenly became possible and we can carry on with them. At least for the moment, it appears as if Morrison has got it. But we the sort of knee-jerk thing saying we need industrial relations reform, which of course met the old agenda of bashing unions. Quite early in the piece, Morrison said, well, yeah, we don't need just another rehash of what we've been doing for the last yeah, five or ten years. And we seem to have seen some progress there. Again, with the the events in the US, which had both, I think, hopeful and also scary bits to them, we've seen a much more positive response to that. Yeah, we've seen people like Textor, Mark Textor, saying, why don't we revive the Euro statement from the heart? Yeah, part of that, I think, is, of course, that the worst elements in our society have marginalised themselves, the bolts and divines and people like that. They all uh, said, don't lock down, just let the old people die. The sensible thing for Morrison to do is to, to break with those people and, and and try and grab the middle ground and hold it as long as possible. And and if he does that, I think we could see progress on Indigenous relations, progress potentially even on climate change. We haven't seen any real movement of that. 
And that's happening, I think, in large parts of the world. In the US context, of course, you're torn between the hope of something radically better and the fear of something radically worse. I'm a little less optimistic about the reformed Scott Morrison than maybe you are. I just get very concerned. He still seems very attached to the idea of closing off JobKeeper and those other benefits after September. What seems to me a really bizarre approach to stimulus in the the renovation money that he's offering, which is tied to renovations over $100,000 or $150,000 where people have to do matching funding, etc. When, you know, there's the opportunity here to do something really useful around social housing, for instance. As you know, I guess I'm a congenital optimist. Um, <laughs> uh, I don't think having changed, he has acquired a lot of new thinking about things, more an openness to it. And I think we've seen this as well from you know, Albanese, for example, you know, still talking high-speed rail. Well, maybe that's a good idea, but I really think I would be suggesting um, doing the NBN right would be a more useful response to the crisis than trying again with sort of lots of shovel-heavy infrastructure projects. So what I draw out of the building scheme is more saying, we've, had, yeah, we've intervened, we're going to keep on intervening. And that's a shift again from what was said, certainly when JobKeeper was introduced, six months, it's going to be over, we'll have step back. Well, the very introduction of, of this new one suggests uh, they're backing away from that, that there's going to be continued intervention going well beyond September. So there's an openness, and it's a question of coming up with the right ideas that can command that broad support. You raised Albanese there and the um, high-speed rail. Often when the left of politics, and I don't just mean the Labor Party, but the mm. left more broadly, speak about the economy and what we can do, almost the first thing they mention is some variation of we need to bring back manufacturing. I was just wondering what you think of that focus on manufacturing and, and if that is really the best way for Australia to address the future of work. Well, certainly I don't think we need to go back to manufacturing cars, for example. Government didn't handle the, the final phases of that transition well. They you know, still had some you know, essentially cultural, ideological access to grind, which meant they did that in a very harsh and unsatisfactory way. We need to rethink where we are in terms of global supply chains and those kinds of things. But I don't think that translates into lots of production line manufacturing jobs. So yeah, I think I think there is a lot of a lot of nostalgic thinking there. And it's also just seen in uh, the instant resort to hard hats. Yes. The vast majority of people don't work with a hard hat on. And the people who we need in this context haven't been mostly people with hard hats on. Nurses, delivery workers, people who don't get mentioned usually when we start thinking about creating jobs, even though they're working in areas where it's much easier to create jobs at low cost than it is with large-scale construction projects, for example. John, we've received a couple of audio postcards to help our discussion along today. And the first one we're going to hear is from just north of you on the Sunshine Coast. Hi, I'm Nolly. We run a regional online portal on the Sunshine Coast covering Bribie to Gympie and deal with hundreds of small businesses. The Sunshine Coast is around 92% small business, as in, you know, mum and dad style operators that are pretty much someone who is just self-employed and, and maybe employs one or two others in tourist season. COVID-19 has hit them really, really hard. The coast basically shut down at the end of March and as JobKeeper was announced so late, a lot of small businesses had already put off the staff they had. Their biggest focus was negotiating with landlords. 
while obviously having no or little income coming in. The majority of landlords are not local, so it's really complicated the issue further is, again, direction from government in relation to commercial rents. It just came way too late. For many, it was easier just to shut up shop. There will be no quick snapback here. For many small businesses, it's just the same as the other 40% of the nation who can't survive a month without pay. If they have a business loan, it is generally attached to a mortgage, so they don't want to extend that, particularly not to float a payroll for six weeks or longer. In fact, I know of quite a few who drew down on their own super instead of going to Centrelink and also to help pay staff. JobKeeper was too late, too complicated, especially as most of these people can't afford accountants. One further point, people screaming about opening borders are really short-sighted. At the moment, most small business and tourism areas are in a holding pattern and the competition from a smaller pool of domestic visitors will be really fierce. If any tourist area has an outbreak and a second wave, that will be the end of them. Most won't survive a second whack like that. For most small business at the moment, survival for a possible future is the main game. Basically, it's the only game. Oh, thanks to Noli from the Sunshine Coast. And John, that's some on-the-ground reality there. Come September, that's going to be a difficult spring, isn't it? The ending of JobKeeper and the halving again, apparently, of JobSeeker. Mortgages need to be repaid, perhaps some difficult times of those landlords that Nolly was referring to. On the ground, things are, are very difficult. People have drawn down on their super as well. Aren't we heading into a really difficult time come September? Well, certainly if the government sticks to its current state of policy, but I guess I already said I'm edging away from it. You've had the Governor of the Reserve Bank essentially saying cutting things off in September isn't going to work. Of course, uh, the discovery that they double the, the cost of the scheme as it stands will help them. So it remains to be seen, of course, but I think as September approaches, it's going to be clear that this isn't really a go. A hand with lockdown incredibly well, and we'll, we'll see a more rapid recovery, I think, than most people expected. The world economy is still going to be in dreadful shape, and the idea that we can just shut things down, I think, is going to seem less and less appealing as, as it approaches that day. Now, that might not happen, but I guess I'm counting on enlightened self-interest. I think it would be crazy for the government to stick to that commitment unless, unless the recovery is a great deal more rapid than, than the science so far seems to suggest. The downsides seem to be concentrated with young people who, who are all already suffering from you know, casualisation and an inability mm. to afford a home and, and all that stuff. And now they're education stuffed. And it just seems to me that it's pretty basic to keep a really strong social safety net to give young people hope, but also to, to deal with the fact that there's so many changing trends as a result of this, like working from home, online, retail. Is there any way that at last young people could be focused on after this? Well, I think, I mean, it remains to be seen how the industrial relations reform thing goes, but obviously the direction of reform, uh, casualisation in the, in the strict form was a big development of the 1990s, but we saw a, re a new form of re-emerging with the with the gig economy and so forth. One of the big lessons, I guess, has been the need need for sick leave and everybody has to be in a position to be able to stay home when they're sick. That implies, yeah. I think, um, that implies a shift away from all these casualised and contracted forms of employment. So there's a, a possibility there. Obviously, one of the really unfortunate things we've, we've seen, um, one of the real failures has been uh, in relation to policy towards the university sector and that, that reflects, I've written about this, both the structural problem of having this notion that we have 39 independent competing corporations that are in the business of providing tertiary education, and also, of course, the last remnants of the culture war 
you know, lots of that's been buried, but the government's hatred for the universities is still is still well and truly alive, and and we still haven't fixed TAFE. So that's I think something where you know we really haven't made any progress so far, and, and where I think if we're going to have a proper recovery, we need we need big attention to that. John, I saw on the seven thirty report last night that there's a are fleeing back to the family home. Sons and daughters are coming home to mum and dad. Mum and dad may or may not have an income. They may have lost their businesses and incomes as well. How do you see that contraction of households and fundamental shifts in household spending affecting the economy this year and beyond? Well, of course, it isn't a totally new trend. I think we've seen uh, the age at which kids leave home has been growing on for a long time, the long trend towards decreasing household size, really bottomed out in the early 2000s. One of the features of the pandemic, I think, is a lot of the changes uh, that we see as of the pandemic are changes that, that were happening anyway and will have been greatly accelerated by this. Working from home, for example, was something it made sense, but there were all sorts of inertia and that kind of stuff. You know, I think it proved impossible to restore normal office functioning for a very long time, and I think that trend... Uh, by the time we, we get back to you know, uh, vaccine or something, that trend will have been greatly accelerated. And I think the same is true with this household shift, that the cost of increasing household size, of kids moving out of school, out of home young, has been a problem for a long time. We have you know, very large houses. Uh, that's an obvious way of saving money that will, will change. I mean, I think to look at something going the opposite direction, we were making good progress in the direction of improved public transport. Of course, that's um, that's been um, greatly reversed by the virus. And other questions, I guess, whether we can find ways of of restoring that and reversing the shift, reversing a move back to private cars. That's that's something which, if we can overcome it, I think we'll see a, a return to more sensible things when the, when the pandemic is over. But we really need to need to work on that in in all sorts of ways. So I think lots of lots of these trends, I think, again, online shopping, you know, loads of people had never tried online grocery shopping. Now, some of them will be very glad to be able to go back to the store, pick stuff off the shelf, you know, hold in their hand. But lots of people will think, why, did I, why didn't I do this years ago? Both Tim and Margot have mentioned young people in our discussion so far, John, and I guess lurking in our discussion is the plight of workers, particularly those workers who didn't get much from JobKeeper. Hmm. Let's hear from Moira. She's a digital organiser with the Trades Hall Council in Melbourne. Hi, my name's Moira. I'm a proud member of the Australian Services Union. The past few months have shown unions to be more critical than ever in fighting for justice, while the Liberals and big business try to exploit the current crisis for their own benefit. Over the past few months, we've fought for a wage subsidy for all workers to ensure that JobKeeper is being applied fairly, for paid pandemic leave for all workers, and for a fair recovery from this crisis. The number of people affected has been unlike anything I've ever seen before, and in response, we've seen hundreds of thousands of union members taking action online and offline. From the beginning of this crisis, the union movement has been campaigning for a wage subsidy for all workers. Although we want a wage subsidy for millions of working people, Scott Morrison and Josh Frydenberg decided to leave two million casual and migrant workers out in the cold. Meanwhile, we've also been supporting workers who aren't getting a fair deal with their JobKeeper payments. Their bosses are picking and choosing who they'll give JobKeeper to, writing up dodgy contracts and not giving workers the full amount, expecting them to work more hours for less money, even firing employees. It's another form of wage theft, and it's illegal. 
Lastly, we're campaigning for paid pandemic leave for all workers to ensure that our return to work is safe. This is important for workers who don't have access to sick leave, which is a third of the Australian workforce. Moving forward, unions will be fighting against austerity and draconian changes to Australia's industrial relations system. Working people need to be front and centre in this recovery, and Scott Morrison has shown he's only too keen to leave us behind. That's Moira, a digital organiser with the Trade Talk Council here in Melbourne. And John, one thing she underlined there is the variability of the way JobKeeper has been applied. How do you see that? It was introduced in a hurry and um, included both uh, practical problems, you know, how do you how do you deal with casual workers, uh, but also clearly, as I've said, some cultural type projects on the part of the government, that particular sectors, the university sector, arts and entertainment, this residual sense that they're the enemy and uh, need to be punished. And I think some of that is ebbing away, by no means all of it. Um, and obviously, again, the huge mistake the government made in calculating the cost, it's hard for them now to pretend well, we can't possibly do this when they were prepared to do twice as much uh, when they thought that was the cost. So yeah, Labor is doing a good job in pointing that out, uh, in saying yeah, we really need to use this opportunity to expand and extend JobKeeper, given that uh, both the initial cost was much smaller than we thought, and also that I think... Uh, Uh, The recovery is going to be faster so that more and more businesses will be able to go off JobKeeper as, for example, the restaurant and pub sector open up much faster than we expected. You're in the Transit Zone. I'm Peter Park, Margot Kingston, Tim Dunlop and our guest, based in Brisbane at the University of Queensland, is economist John Quiggan. You'd think, wouldn't you, that the world would get together and decide that they would abolish tax havens and, and that the huge digital companies like Amazon and so on, which are even bigger now and almost overwhelming, that they'd be forced to pay tax. Maybe there'd be some breakups, that there'd be some real work at last on maybe a Tobin tax. But with the, the end of America as, as the world leader it, and all the borders and everything, it sort of feels like we're going to retreat a bit into internationalism. Is there any chance to sort all this stuff out or, or is it too late? America has this combination of, of huge promise and huge fear, which basically comes down to whether whether Trump loses the election, whether he goes. If he does lose, you can see real nightmare scenarios but you can also imagine the US grappling with those, at least its own problems. It's obvious that we're going to see a diminution of the US role. It's, that's already happened. And of course, a rise of China. The worst case is when those two countries look, look very similar. I think if, if we had even a moderately progressive Biden administration in the US, suddenly I think China would find that the kinds of authoritarian things they're doing were viewed much more negatively than in the context where we're really faced with a choice between um, you know, one chaotic authoritarianism and another efficient but dangerous authoritarianism. I'm encouraged, I think, the one big development in terms of nationalism is, is that the European Union has for the first time operated as a fiscal union. So they've raised yeah. a $750 billion package, raised not as loans but as grants and raised out of the, out of the European Union budget. Clearly, I think in the end, given that nobody pays much attention to Australia and New Zealand, that uh, the EU is going to look in many ways uh, much more successful than than the US in particular, also the UK, which has fallen over. Uh, That's a sign of progress. And and we have to hope then that 
uh, with a stronger central EU that uh, they uh, are empowered to take action against the various negative forces there. Uh, obviously, the authoritarian nationalism of people like Orbán in Hungary, but also the places like uh, Luxembourg that have have stymied action against tax havens uh, and have demanded adherence to neoliberal fiscal orthodoxy and, and financial policy. When we have this behind us, of course, climate change is going to be be the bigger deal. And, and there, of course, the financial sector is both a potential ally and a potential danger. Margot, you just alluded to what's happening in the United States. And there's no doubt in my mind that COVID-19 has played an enormous part as a, an overarching catalyst for those explosions on the streets of the United States. And of course, allied to that deep and pervasive inequality in the United States, we've been seeing some of the figures, just the gobsmacking inequality there in terms of who owns what. How do you see that as part of the economics of the United States and how it's going to affect the rest of us? They haven't got coronavirus under control at all. They're opening up before they've got it under control. Now there's protests all over the country. I mean, I can see Australia and other countries not being able to open our borders to the US for a while. I mean, it's such a a rogue state at the moment and it's just the collapse, John. Like I was reading yesterday, I think, that that in some states, 12 weeks on, people haven't got their unemployment benefits because everything's state-based. The spectacle of the, the 50 states sort of going in this mad auction to get PPE and, and bidding the prices up. It just seems to be something beyond repair. I don't know about you, but I really, I've really sort of stopped thinking there's much hope in the short to medium term for the US. Yeah, the US does terrible things, but Jesus will miss her when she's gone. And I think we're really, really starting to, to miss her. And from an Australian perspective, it's just scary. And John, of course, Scott Morrison's been invited to a potentially expanded G7. I personally feel incredibly worried about our Prime Minister becoming entangled in that election propaganda and whatever Trump's going to be doing over the next couple of months. But you're the optimist. Well, I mean, it remains to be seen, I guess. I don't think that we expanded G7, that's clear. Uh, whether we're G7 no. at all, I think, is, is very dubious. Mm. And I think it's, as I say, it, it really is this bifurcation. If as somebody said in early 2017, a few different votes and we'll be arguing about how much to raise the minimum wage and what tweaks to make the income tax schedule. Should Trump lose the election, which I think is, is more likely than not, and, and should he be unsuccessful in rejecting the results, we could see very radical change quite fast. First, an instant change in, I think, the the, stolt, the picture of it, that suddenly you know, the, the face of the US that we've seen would be a defeated minority. Uh, but also, for example, I think uh, Biden, who was running very much against Medicare for All, I think clearly is going to have to campaign on something very close to that. What we see, I think, in that is a recognition on the Democratic side that the US model has failed in crucial respects. And, and that takes a long time to sink in. And Americans have been used to thinking of themselves as the best in the world, as the country that runs things best. I remember seeing as the virus was emerging, Report saying you know, the US is the best place country in the world to deal with this because they have the CDC oh. and so forth. And I thought, yeah, you can't possibly believe that. Uh, as it turned out, they were you know, the worst of the developed countries, um, as you as you would have expected, given both the fragmentation that Margot referred to and, of course, the fact that they had Trump in charge. Should we see a change of government there? I think uh, the picture will change very radically, and I I think uh, for the better. John. You and I are involved in a little bit of a working group at the moment looking at what 
we hope can be some transformative policies that seek to reshape the economy more fundamentally. Um, specifically, we're talking about what we're calling a livable income guarantee and also the notion of a jobs guarantee. Can you give us your kind of elevator pitch on what those concepts are, please? They're a continuation of the shift that's been made with JobKeeper and JobSeeker in an important sense, I guess, with the, at least for the moment, abandonment of robo-debt, the return of all that money, that we move, we take uh, the position we're in with JobSeeker, we don't reduce benefits by half back to the old new start, but instead harmonise all benefits at a level around about the old age pension, which was the situation back in the 90s. But then rather than having a punitive system which attempts to drive people as hard as possible to take any job they can get, we recognise all manner of contributions to society, the, the phrase participation income associated with a slightly different proposal from Lady Anthony Atkinson says yeah, we should be giving people a benefit if they're looking for work, but also if they're looking for paid work, but also if they're studying, if they're bringing up children, if they're volunteering for engaging in creative activity and so forth. And that should be paired with a continuation of what's implicit in JobKeeper, namely a recognition that it's the responsibility of government to make sure there are jobs available for everybody who wants them, uh, not in some sense uh, for the market to show how many jobs it feels like and for people to be chipping into chasing those jobs. By virtue of having those schemes in place, if we can resist the snapback at the end of September, are we in a position to build on those things and extend them, uh, certainly as, as policy demands, even if we lose this round, we have this experience to fall back on the saying, this is what we did and it worked. If the government snaps back and it fails, I think uh, that's the kind of ad we need to push for, to say, let's go back to those things which worked so well in that crisis, let's plan them better this time, uh, have a properly organised system with actual principles that move us to a situation where paid work, first, is a choice available for everyone who wants it, uh, but second, isn't necessary to survive if you're willing to contribute in some other way. Yes, I think that's the really interesting thing about the period we've been through. In a sense, it's built a constituency for this sort of livable income guarantee and that it's not just dismissed out of hand as, you know, money for nothing, as it, it often has been up to this point. The political difficulty with a lot of this is that we still do, and this, this is true across the political spectrum, we still do think of having a job, a paid job in a fairly conventional sense as our main contribution as citizens to our society and that there is a sort of an obligation on us to have that sort of employment if we can, which is where we get the notion of, you know, mutual obligation mm. within the welfare system. What these systems, livable income guarantee and a jobs guarantee, are trying to do, as you say, is expand that notion of work into areas like volunteering and homework and caring and, and remunerating that sort of work as well. How do you think that plays, particularly on the left, where at the political level, progressive politics is very closely tied to the Labor Party, and as Chris Bowen once said, the hint is in the name, Labor. They're still very tied to that conventional notion of work. Do you think they're open to this sort of change? There's certainly people for whom... Paid work is the be-all and end-all, but of course, I mean, labour, uh, social science research pointing to the emotional and caring labour done mainly by women in the household, a standard economics analysis saying um, 
labor invested in building human capital and obviously voluntary work is work. So um, I think the participation income is certainly a bridge by which uh, we can get uh, get people with those views if they're willing to adjust them, uh, to extend them, compared, I think, to uh, you know, the kind of Andrew Yang version of, of UBI where the assumption is, look, the robots going to take all the jobs yeah. and just pay people to stay home. Emphasising participation, pushing back, I guess, against the punitive part of you know, seeing things like robo-debt, but also yeah, cashless welfare and extensive breaching and job search requirements. I think that provides a bridge by which some people can move. I think it's fair to say some people in the labour movement are, I think, very much stuck, first very much stuck in the 20th century view of the world, and second, in some cases, uh, just very much attached to, look, this is the labour team, unless you're essentially a person with a hard hat on, you really don't count. John, I'll be the pessimist to your optimist. What about the growing and deepening precariat in Australia? Those casual, often young people who got left out of JobKeeper, we've heard a bit about them on the program today. Austerity does seem to be looming if we read some of the tea leaves from the Morrison government. What about the knowledge economy? What about the semi-meltdown of some of our leading universities right in front of our eyes right now because they've been targeted by the Morrison government? What about moving further afield, tourism and the arts and culture communities and those sectors of the economy. They're not good signs for the Australian economy and it seems like a very big hill to climb. Bigger in some ways than others. I think, I think, the, I think the issue of casualisation, uh, we certainly have seen, I guess, uh, the government's backed away from saying let's continue industrial reforms on the old line. So I, th- I think there I think we have, uh, we have substantial, you know, hope that yeah, the kind of, uh, the kind of agreement, if they get one, that they negotiate with Helena Manus, we're one which uh, is much more pushing people back towards standing conditions where they have things like sick leave and security uh, rather than the continued push away from them. So that's, that's I think, one thing where I'm hopeful. I agree we haven't seen nearly that progress in those in those other areas. Tourism, I think, is a, a bit of a special case. I, I mean, it's a, a much-loved sector. Of course, our Prime Minister was tourism marketer. Uh, there, I think that they'll, you know, the problem is the objective reality rather of, of the situation. And you know, hopefully, we'll see, of course, uh, domestic tourism just you know, significantly replacing um, international tourism. Yeah, I think there's remaining hostility towards the university and arts sectors, I think, is a big problem. But I think, yeah, obviously, we're going to come to the crunch as September approaches, as it becomes clear that, uh, clear that these kinds of stands are going to be destructive whether the government can hold on to them. And, and the same is true on climate change. So far, all we've seen really is momentum of pointless processes that were set in place before the pandemic, origin energy review, the initial setup of the uh, commission with mining magnates at the head of it. Clearly, that hasn't flown at all well, I think, in, in the public debate. Uh, we have to see, I guess, whether, whether the government takes the hint from what's worked and what hasn't. And John, do you have much faith in what we've heard so far as Morrison has flagged potential reforms to the vocational education and training sector? Again, he places industry in the driving seat there for their deciding what the skill sets required should be. That seems to be very aggressive in my view. Do you have much faith in anything being sorted out in that huge mess? I think that's the kind of rhetoric you'd expect. I think uh, the crucial issue is that this needs to be an issue of national concern. That has been a failure at two levels. One is shouldn't be with the states. It should be part of, it should be integrated with the higher education system in the traditional sense. So I think that's positive. And the second is, of course, 
dealing with a catastrophic failure of, of market competition uh, with, with the hill. Yeah. So I think those are the positive things, that if the federal government takes responsibility for this, I don't have a problem really with them listening to business saying there's the kind of skills we need. I think that's a, a second-order issue. A crucial issue is we need the federal government to say we need an educated workforce, we can't rely on market competition. It's been uh, let the marketers work out what they can flog and we'll subsidise that third-rate you know, degrees in personal training and so forth. I guess I see the federal government taking responsibility as the crucial step. Is it worthwhile having some sort of summit process or, you know, imagination exercise or to sort of get people thinking and contributing to how things might look after all this? I think this process period has opened up lots of people to think, well, how should we do things? So I think it's a matter of harnessing that energy and of course that's the positive side of what's happening in the US is things which have people have said look you know it's terrible it's bad but that's the way it is we'll hold a you know we'll hold a protest and then go home again are suddenly saying yeah this has yeah we have to just keep on going until something really happens now we just have to keep this pressure up. What I would add to that is I would like to see a lot more organised grassroots stuff around things like citizens' assemblies. I'd like to see talk about those formal organisations alongside the reinvention around the National Cabinet, etc. because I think there's some real advantages with the National Cabinet, but one of the risks with it is that it becomes an elite talk fest and cancels mm. out that sort of grassroots voice. So I think we need more of those sorts of institutional developments as well. Certainly encouraged by the fact that there seems to be more, more talking and listening going on and the more frameworks we can find for that, the better. We're in the habit here in the Transit Zone before we part company in just comparing notes on what we're reading, listening to, watching, what's excited us. And Margot, what's been exercising you in the books or the, or the music or the television this week? Well, I've stopped reading. I've stopped watching shows on TV and I've unfortunately gone back into that zone that I've escaped for a long time, which is just on Twitter all the time on US politics. Mm. The feeling of the bigness of of all this and and the the continuing shock. I'm sure I'm like a lot of people around the world who thought, oh, well, you know, the US is its own thing and it's a great society or whatever, but my God, I mean... (laughs) I'm just still shocked by the militarisation of the police. How it's got to that, I, I don't really know. The deliberate attacks on journalists, including those Channel 7 journalists, um, very famously. Every single thing most politicians say on both sides is so tired and so corrupt. Now and again, you get a, a voice come out and you go, oh, my God, you know, there's a soul left. And the mayor of Atlanta uh, Keisha Lance Bottom, uh, Killer Mike, <laughs> these incredible black voices that that seem to know much more about the the values of of America and nonviolent protest. That thing where um, where Trump just sort of gassed um, his own people for a, a photo op and everything, and then I don't know if you've seen the latest image of of him and Melania alone in this church, looking like cut out figures from cyborgs or something is that the whole collapse into entertainment and look you you look at it and you go actually there's no substance but I keep thinking okay for all the problems that Australia's gotten you know I've been critical 
we, we have so much more capacity to to get out of this well imaginatively and, and with a, a form of social cohesion. I'm just completely obsessed with with, with the whole thing, and I've I've got to I've got to get out of it. It's a strange country, and I. I don't know about you, but I'm just praying it gets through it. I'm just mm. praying for all of us that it that it gets through it in, in reasonable shape. I've managed, I haven't got off Twitter completely, but I've managed to get away from it more than I was. I'm, I'm mainly focusing on writing, I guess. I'm trying just to discipline myself. I promised to write a book about Australia after the pandemic. I'm writing about liberal income guarantee and stuff like that, so I'm, I'm really trying hard you know, to look away and just keep typing. I've gone back to the Robert Hughes Rome, the rise and fall of empires. I wonder why. And <laughs> as I've been enthusing to Margot and Tim about a, a wonderful piece on uh, SBS television, NITV, Warwick Thornton, the Indigenous film director, made what could broadly be described as a documentary. It's a hybrid. It really is a constructed documentary set on the Dampier Peninsula, Broomers at the foot of the Dampier Peninsula, extraordinary coastline and a remarkable piece of cinema or stream television. His son, Dylan, did the cinematography and has made that saltwater country, remembering that Thornton himself comes from Alice Springs, red sand country, that saltwater country really is the star of this piece. And I would heartily recommend people watch Warwick Thornton's The Beach, which is still available on SBS On Demand. Tim? My interests have been much more mundane. Yeah, I've been reading about freezers this week, I've decided we need a freezer. One of the, <laughs> one of the big changes in how we've lived over the last few weeks <laughs> has been, I, I cook all the time anyway, but I've, I've just been making a lot more, you know, stock and pasta sauces. I've, I've become a prepper, I think, is <laughs> what this boils yeah. down to. Margaret Simons had a piece the other day in the Saturday paper, and, and it was about the problems with the food chain. And the point that she makes in that is that even though Australia is largely self-sufficient in food, we're still tapped into international food chains in various ways. So, for instance, even if we can produce the food that goes in a glass jar, the glass jar has to come from overseas, um, and sometimes the lid for the glass jar comes from a different place. So we're, we're still reliant on those food chains. And she talks about some advice from... ABARE, the Australian Bureau of Agriculture and Resource Economics, they make the point that typically Australians have a couple of days food on hand and they were advising that we blow that out to like two weeks of food on hand. So I've got absolutely nowhere to put a freezer in our apartment, so I've been trying to find one that might fit somewhere. John, thanks so much for being with us here in the Transit Zone. Thanks for having me. Tim Margot, catch you next week. Bye. Thanks, Peter. Bye. And our guest next week in the Transit Zone is digital media researcher Professor Axel Bruns. We'll be discussing journalism in the digital era, disinformation and filter bubbles. Axel Bruns next time here in the Transit Zone. Please follow us on Twitter, as I always say, Transit Zone Pod. Transit Zone Pod, that's our Twitter handle. These podcasts are now searchable and you can subscribe, which I suggest you do, at Spotify and iTunes. If you have any comments on this or any of our podcasts, and coronavirus world topics for all of us to explore here, please email us. Here's the email address, transitzonepod at gmail.com. And you heard some audio postcards today. You can send us some audio comments and suggestions too. Maybe your own brief audio postcards. Here's the email address, transitzonepod at gmail.com. 
I'm Peter Clark in Melbourne, Australia, for the Transit Zone team, Tim Dunlop and Margot Kingston. Thanks for being with us, and we'll catch you next time here in the Transit Zone. You are now leaving the Transit Transit Zone. Zone.